Let me begin, if I can, with a bit of a story. Many of you will know I like my war history, and here we go. I'm going to kick off with that, because uh, that's always uh, good. In uh, October 1944, uh, a man named Field Marshal Erwin Rommel received a telegram, and it said this, these words, Everything has already been arranged in Berlin. Rommel had been implicated in a plot against Hitler. But because he was loved by the German people and revered as this great military leader, an arrangement in Berlin, as the telegram said, was considered very kind. So he went to Berlin, he got into a black Mercedes with a general either side of him, he drove off, and he drank a vial of poison. Fifteen minutes later he was called, sorry, his wife was called, informing her that her husband had died of a cerebral embolism caused by war injuries. Rommel had no choice. Uh, If he drank the poison, his family would be allowed to live. Uh, He would receive, uh, sorry, his wife would receive his pension. His name would be esteemed in German war history, as it has been ever since. Rommel received a state funeral. Hitler wrote a telegram to his wife and it read this. Frau Rommel, Mrs. Rommel, please accept my sincerest sympathy for the heavy loss that you have suffered The point is, everything had been arranged. Now, a story like that shocks us to a degree, doesn't it? But we kind of expect it within the kind of the paranoia of a Nazi regime. But what if such abuses of power occurred elsewhere? Uh, You know... Perhaps a more contemporary, a closer regime or power. Um, Imagine our shock... Imagine our outrage if something like that occurred so close to us. But then consider for a moment, if you can, what about if such an abuse of power occurred within God's kingdom? Uh, Take it a step further. Even worse, what if God's anointed king was the instigator? Now, what are we supposed to do with that? Because we hear a story about Hitler and and his cronies and we can quickly dismiss them, can't we? As a kind of, ooh, they were an exception to humanity. They're right down there, the dark side of the moral spectrum, if you like. But what can we do with David here? I mean, do you see the problem? Because we've been looking at uh, 2 Samuel this year, 1 Samuel the previous year, and 1 Samuel 16, 1 tells us that uh, you know, he was the, probably the wisest and the best king that we've ever seen. He's established God's kingdom with justice and righteousness, as we saw in chapter 8 last week. He's achieved this because God is with him and God is for him. David, as uh, 1 Samuel 13, verse 14 says, he's a man after God's own heart. We saw last week in chapter 9, didn't we, the beautiful kindness, the godly kindness, the Hesed kindness that he pours out on Mephibosheth. Because 15 years, 20 years before, he'd made a covenant with his friend Jonathan. Uh, David not only protects, but he restores Mephibosheth, saving him from death, preparing a table for him. And if you remember, in this, David is like a small reflection, if you like, of the covenant kindness we receive through Jesus, our King Messiah who saves us and prepares a table for us in his eternal kingdom. So we've seen David. He's the man after God's own heart. And he doesn't do just what is expected. No, he went so far beyond with Mephibosheth and so on. Uh, 
to people who were so undeserving and, and so ungrateful at times, like we saw with the Ammonites last week in chapter 10. But as I kind of just introduced last week, how the mighty fall. But my question is, what, what are you going to do with that? Because David is in so many ways more godly, more sacrificial, uh, more a man after God's own heart than any of us. But he is capable of what we have just heard. Now do you see what this does? Think in your own minds right now. Uh, I hope and pray that all of you sat here, however kind of nonchalant you feel after life's going well, I hope that none of you leave here thinking that, oh, that's never going to happen to me. As we have just sung on purpose, last verse, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I hope you believe that. I certainly hope you believe it after today. When the Baptist pastor, Robert Robinson, wrote that hymn, uh, late uh, 18th century, he knew he was delighted. He was serving the Lord Jesus, a wonderful man. But he knew his proneness to wonder. He'd become a Christian in 1752 under the preaching of George Whitfield, but he knew his weakness. He wasn't naive. Prone to wonder. Prone to leave. How the mighty can fall. What we see in this chapter, chapter 11, you will, you will struggle to find a darker, more dirty chapter in the whole of the Bible. Let's see how it takes place. It's very clipped, isn't it? It's very brief. We're going to run through it quite fast. First point on your sheets, I hope it's helpful. How the mighty fall, verse 1 to 5. Now, just broad picture, you see the king of kindness, as he was painted last week, suddenly becomes the king of what? Self-indulgence, isn't it? And note that it doesn't take very long. should be a warning. There's nothing but action in this text. And it's cold and it's stark. Note, no conversation. No love. No kindness. No affection. It's just lust. David doesn't even call her by name, does he? At the end of the episode, she's just the woman, objectified by the lust of and power of the man. The passage is littered. I don't know if you spotted it as we went through. There's a word sent, 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 sent. It comes the whole way through the passage. I'll point them out as we go. And this essentially shows us how power shifts and the pace of the action moves on. Firstly, we see in verse 1, David sent Joab and his army to take on the Ammonites. So, Rabbi, that's the context, isn't it? We saw that introduced last week in chapter 10. There's a war going on. And we can easily forget all of that action that's taking place over here in Rabbi, because what's happening is, if you like, in a film terms, not British Jones, it's Robert, I mean, as it comes back, um, the camera is panning and focusing in on the palace of David. That's what's happening here. So Joab and his army are sent, but David remains resting on his bed. He goes for an early evening stroll, we see, on the palace roof, enjoying the cool evening air. And nothing should alarm us at this point. David was a good king. That's what we've known of him, isn't it, so far within this uh, book. Uh, he's safe in the stronghold of his city and the palace, away from the battleground of Ramah. But the... 
The interesting thing about this story, think about this for a moment. The power that brought David down was not an external enemy. King David, this great man of God, a man after God's own heart, was not safe from himself. And the walls of Jerusalem were no protection against his desires. He saw a woman bathing, we see, uh, and she was beautiful. Again, at this point, King David has done absolutely nothing wrong. He's just gone for a walk on the palace roof. Now, you expect him, don't you, at this stage, to do as he's done with Mephibosheth and others before, uh, but he continued to look, and that is the point that he begins to fall. The lingering look grows into a lustful thought. Put your seatbelts on because it's about to get very quick. What does he do? The lingering gaze is now etched in his mind and a lustful thought is fully fertilised. He sent, notice, for the woman. It's an action of power. He sent for her. He used his power and searched out and found out something about her. We see three things that we know about Bathsheba. Firstly, she's called Bathsheba. Which interestingly means she's called, the name means daughter of an oath. Notice the irony. Simply because what is about to occur makes a mockery of any kind of oath keeping. Secondly, we see that she is daughter of Eliam. who's probably the son of Athropol, one of David's mighty men that we'll get to right at the end of this book. Bathsheba belonged to a family that was at this point, wasn't later, but was at this point loyal loyal to King David. Again, spot the irony. And lastly, and most importantly, of course, this is Uriah the Hittite's wife. She was married. Uriah, a Hittite, so he's a, a resident alien within God's kingdom, but he is a loyal servant to King David. Again, the irony at this stage is becoming unbearable, isn't it? Now, even knowing more about Bathsheba, at this point he's sent for information, the information comes back. We kind of expect David, because what we know of him so far, to put an end to this, don't we? Right, stop. I know, I know those three things. Not enough. But no. Look how brief and terse the next couple of verses are. Let me just run through them with you if I can. Then David, we see, sent uh, sorry, messengers to get her. She came to him. He slept with her. She went back home. She conceived. Sent word. I am pregnant. David asserts his authority and his power and forgets all the warnings that he'd heard from Samuel all those years ago. Do you remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 8? Samuel had warned about uh, getting a king, an earthly king. God was enough, he was saying. And he warned against a king because a king would be like all the other nation's kings. A king would take. And for so long, David had refused to take and abuse the power he'd be given, but here he fell. And by the end of the verse 4, if you just look down there, you'll see he returns to the bed from which he had innocently risen from earlier to have taken evening stroll and no longer... Was he innocent in that way? 
Now you get to the end of those very clipped verses and you're kind of going, well, I've got loads of questions about what God, it's just not ex- explaining anything to me. You know, was David, was he a bit stressed about the war? Was he letting off a little bit of steam? You know, that'd be all right, wouldn't it? Is he going through a kind of, I've got a motorbike, that's my midlife crisis, but you know, is he having a midlife crisis? You just don't know. There's so many questions. Was Bathsheba provoking him? Oh. Again, it doesn't matter. All these questions are eclipsed by what David did. How the mighty fall. Uh, the, the more astute of you will have noticed there's a whole bunch of things going on here which is so like um, Adam in the Garden of Eden. The language is very similar. The action is very similar. You can look at it later and see the parallels. But David, like Adam in the Garden of Eden, exposes, doesn't he, the fragility of human nature here. And we sympathise, don't we? Because deep down we all know, given the circumstances and the opportunity... You probably would. David, like Adam, fell from grace. They were for a moment ruled by their desires rather than God's good word. And that is what we want. And pray that we would not be like David. That we would be ruled by God's good word. But David has power and he can arrange. And at this moment he's thinking, Whoa, what can I do? I've got to cover it up. Surely no harm is done though, that's okay, you know. If no one's hurt, kind of what's the problem here? Do you kind of hear the cry of kind of postmodern life and our culture around? The sexual freedoms that are so enjoyed by people around, well, seemingly enjoyed by people around. See, the only boundary that our culture would place on this text, what would it be? They'd probably say, oh, that's out, that, that's out of order if Bathsheba didn't consent. That would be a a step over the line, wouldn't it? That's what everyone else would say. But if no one gets hurt, it's just a bit of fun on the side, isn't it? I'm not going to mention Donald Trump again, uh, but please note this. Power, of which many of you have in spade loads, and cultural sexual freedom are a potent and dangerous cocktail. How the mighty fall. But the story becomes ever more sordid, but the control and power are the key. Uh, The story uh, is power being exercised to arrange circumstances. And David, doesn't he? He seems totally in control. Second point on your sheet, how the mighty control. We're going to run through this. David, at least uh, in his first section, he just seems so overwhelmingly powerful here, doesn't he? But he is frustrated at times as we move on. Look at the control. First first five verses. He saw, he asked about, he sent, he took, he made pregnant. What a man, everyone's going. No. What a terrible man. Look at the following section. Uh, Verse 6. David sends for. Verse 7. He asks. Verse 8. He orders. Verse 8 and uh, halfway through. He lavishes with gifts. He seems so in control, doesn't he? But the frustration for him is that he can't control his loyal subject, the husband of the woman he's made pregnant, namely Uriah the Hittite. Oh, he teases uh, Uriah, doesn't he? He brings him back from the, the front line and says, hey, come on, you know, just, just enjoy one night with your beautiful wife. Essentially, please cover up my dirty unfaithfulness, please. 
And Uriah floors David, doesn't he? Verse 11, just cast your eyes down there, with this wonderful response. He says, you know, essentially he says, how could I possibly, David, how could I possibly do that? All, all the soldiers are there, they're in the tents, the arcs, how could I go back to my wife who would just be so disloyal to my soldiers and my friends? David is so hard-hearted at this stage, doesn't he? He plays what he hopes will be his final card. He gets Uriah drunk, doesn't he? Hoping to send him back to his wife again. It's just a cover-up. He just wants to exercise power. Get it, get it sort of dealt with there. But David is wielding this control and power again and again. But he is frustrated again. Because David, sorry, Uriah disobeys the royal order. I mean, that's extraordinary. But David isn't done, does he? The interesting thing is he makes Uriah, doesn't he, carry essentially his own death warrant back to Joab at the front line. Did you see that? Again, David is in control, it seems. All that matters at this stage, when we get to sort of verse 15 sort of onwards, is that Uriah is dead. That's all that centers around the story. Uriah, dead. It even is mentioned five times after verse 15. He will get the military funeral. His wife will get the pension. He will be esteemed in military history. But his death was premature and it was totally arranged by David. In his frustration, he shamelessly wields his power to cover up his immoral mess. The sobering truth is, we are all prone to wonder God's people can be like this. The question I want to ask is, what does that mean for God's kingdom? See, David reigned imperfectly, as we see, just in very stark terms here. The kingdom is essentially never truly safe in his hands. But it is safe. Someone was once called Great David's Greatest Son. His name is Jesus. In the line of David, he will always rule with righteousness and justice. And one day, will enforce that righteousness and justice when he returns as promised. It's that delay that is the slight conundrum of this chapter, isn't it? Where is God? It's a question people ask today, isn't it? Where's God? Where's God in this chapter? Let me finish with this little sideline point, if you like. Silence does not indicate absence. Be warned. The silence of God does not indicate absence. The last couple of verses, they're really sobering. Just cast your eyes down to the last couple of verses. Verse 26 and verse 27. We see Bathsheba's informed about her husband. He's dead. Her grief could be covering her relief. Again, we don't know. We don't know how long she grieved for. Crocodile tears or whatever. We're not sure. Last verse, nine months pass. She becomes David's wife, bears him a son. And in some ways, we all go, whoo, all covered up. It's all sorted, isn't it? Has David, with all that power, got away with it? No, as Ash pointed out earlier. Look at the end part of verse 27. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it? Just cast your eyes back to verse 25. Uh, David can say to Joab, literally saying, don't let this evil upset you. He's essentially there saying, 
overlook this little indiscretion of mine if you could. You know, move on. It's just locker room stuff. But this episode ends and we are clear, we are clear that God is clear. He will not overlook and he will not move on. God is not involved in any other verse of this chapter. He is absolutely silent throughout within the narrative, but he's not absent. And he sees and he knows. David can seemingly get away with it. He can be seemingly so in control until the moment that he runs smack into the judgment of God. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Oh, David may have what he wants. He has the flesh of Bathsheba and the blood of Uriah. But he he will have to face God's eyes of justice. Chapter 11 is, I think, a depressing insight into all of our proneness to wonder. Don't underestimate how close we are. But this second chapter, chapter 12, I think is uh, it's an epic in a sense that it reveals a greater power, greater than our rebellion and sin. And let's look at that together as we, can, as we uh, kind of move on now. Chapter 11, uh, David's in control and he dominates until he comes before that all-seeing judgment of God. Chapter 12, by contrast, is dominated by God. It's dominated by God and his word. And what do we expect? I know what I kind of expected. You know, I was trying to say, I don't know this, but I'm going to read it through again, a bit fresh face. And I wanted kind of just to be this kind of serious punishment for David again and again and again. He's a scoundrel. Deserves everything that he can possibly get. But instead of punishment, I think what we see is the unmerited kindness of God. He's poured out. It is grace. And firstly, we see the action of grace. Now look at verse 1 if you can. Nathan again is sent. See the word there? He's sent by God. God is at the forefront here. Sent by God to David. Before God may have seen as the passive, may have been seen as the passive onlooker. But look at verse 1. He's just, no, the Lord sent Nathan. There is a vigilance here that we don't often associate with God's grace. You may have felt it in your life, you may have experienced it in your life. God pursues and exposes the rebellion in the rebel. You may be thinking that God is, oh, he's just overlooking your unfaithfulness to him at the moment and you're kind of moving away from his word. But if you are one of his children, he will come after you. This is the action of grace. And let me tell you, it's not enjoyable. But it is loving. Let's move on. The wisdom of grace we see now from verse 1 through to 7. Nathan, as he speaks to David, is so wise, isn't it? Savvy, you might say. He tells a story about a powerful rich man taking this sheep from his little poor you like, oh, he's so cute, isn't he? As you kind of read the story, he's, oh, he's lovely. He treats him like a daughter and he's all solid, yeah. Recognise who David is, right? He's the supreme judge of God's kingdom. 
Nathan is so savvy and so wise as he tees up the best story of injustice that you could possibly imagine. And it makes David's blood boil. It's brilliant, isn't it? So wise. He even responds. Do you notice how David responds to to this story being told? He responds with an oath in verse 5. As surely as the Lord lives, this man and the story must die. Verse 6, then he quotes the law of of Exodus 22. He knows what is right. But Nathan, and of course God in and through Nathan, have him exactly where they want to. And verse 7, bang. It's the punchline. You are that man. You are that man. The story, I don't think, is as important as, if you like, the strategy that Nathan employs here. Nathan, you see, doesn't sit down and tell David that he is an evil, womanizing murderer. He is. But notice that Nathan doesn't employ that strategy. I'm not sure David, as the most powerful man probably in the whole world at that point, would have even listened. Nathan is wise, he is ingenious, he is savvy. Let me quote one scholar, if I may, for just a moment. He says this, His technique is the godly scheming of grace that goes around the end of our resistance and causes us to switch the floodlights on our own darkness. Nathan didn't accuse, he didn't pester. He simply got David to accuse himself, didn't he? It's brilliant. And that is the wisdom of God's grace. If if God is determined to bring you back to repentance, he will employ crafty people, savvy, wise people like Nathan to help you see who you really are. God in his grace is very clever like that sometimes. And notice that is part of his grace. Let's go on though to the anger of grace, third point in this uh, chapter. Verse 7 through to verse 12. God now begins to show David the full extent of his fall. And he begins by showing him his blessings, if you like. In verse 7 and 8, you see, he lists all the grace that has been poured out into his life. David has everything. And it's only when you see how much you've been blessed with that you can truly realise how awful the sin of your life is. Again, verse 9 is quite pivotal in this section. The accusation comes, Why? Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? I could spend so long on that. It's, It's so important. This is despising of the word of the Lord. What results there was destruction spelt out at the end of verse 9. And in verse 10, if you like the result, the, the sword of the Ammonites will never depart from your house. And this will actually be the primary theme of the following eight chapters of this book. David has despised God. As we see in both verse 9 and 10, David has treated God's word and God himself as if they just don't matter at all. And God is rightfully angered. Angered. He has been despised. Grace, you see, is not grace until we know how much we have hurt and angered God. 
Grace is not God being nice. Which is why, do you know that probably the most famous hymn of all time, Amazing Grace, you can finish the sentence, Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Fear. Grace is not just unmerited kindness from God, it is also fury that leads to favour. Let's go on to fourthly, the miracle of grace, verse 13 and 14. David deserved death, he knew that. In the law of God that was clear. But he is miraculously, miraculously saved by God's grace. Look at verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. And you do read that and you go, oh, come on. That's surely too easy. David's got away with it. He just said, I've sinned. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, no problem. It's no problem. It is the simplicity of his confession that leads to the forgiveness of his sin. He's not making any excuses, is he? He simply acknowledges, I've sinned. And at this, God pours out his grace and forgives David. The consequences of a sin death are taken away at this stage. The miracle of grace is there. And I think we all too easily forget the beauty of it. Be very careful not to think of God's forgiveness and grace as something that you have earned or purchased. Oh, you're coming to church. You you prayed a few prayers and that's looking good on your CV and so on. You've done a few kind things throughout the week. None of that will purchase any forgiveness from God. We are miserable offenders needing a miracle. And I wonder, I've been helped by this thought this week, I think, perhaps we just need to rekindle that awe that we once felt. Do you remember it? Perhaps when you first became a Christian? The awe that you felt and and just knew in your life as you recognise God's miracle of grace, the forgiveness of sin that you've known, are you in the same awe that you once were? But the miracle of grace does come at a cost because God is just. The child of David and Bathsheba would die. Uh, you know, it seems here, doesn't it, as a bit of a substitute in, in his place. I, I don't want to draw too many lines here, but note a pattern if you can. The miracle of grace and forgiveness is paradoxical in this. It is both free and it is also costly. We cannot earn it, but someone must take on themselves what we deserve. And of course we know that one of David's sons in the line of David did that for us. That is, of course, Jesus. Lastly then, let's look uh, very quickly now at the, the life of grace. Last verse, I'm going to have to run through these. See this, though, if we can, as we close. I think we get to these end verses, and I, I think we, we see that David has, has not just understood grace at this point. Grace has just completely got him in his whole life. 
Because he's low, isn't he? He, so, he? he prays and prays, sackcloth and all this kind. He longs for the child to be saved and he cries out to God that his grace will be shown in this way. He knows God has the power and he, he cries out to him, but God doesn't grant David his prayer and the son dies. David gets up, verse 20, we see, and he washes, and he goes to his wife, and life goes on. Oh, you can see that the servants, they're, they're all a bit kind of, ooh, what's going on here? But he gets up, and his life isn't a life where he's wallowing around in his guilt, and thinking that God hates him, and that he hates God. Rather, he lives in the grace that he has received. It's been poured out into his life. And it is that sense of grace, that, that feeling, that wonderful truth in his life that he is going to respond to day after day after day. And it helps him to, to not wallow, but to live with hope. And I think that should give hope to us all. If we know God's grace and forgiveness for our sin as we have trusted in our Messiah King, namely Jesus, Know today that the life of grace is not one of guilt and despair. We may never forget our Bathshebas. We each know what they are in our own lives. We may never forget our Bathshebas. But we can live in grace and not despair. Let me finish with a very gentle warning, if I may, to the weary amongst us. And I think there probably are one or two of us. Robert Robinson, who wrote that hymn that we sang just before this sermon, um, Prone to Wander, Prone to Leave. Robinson, later in the, on his life, had given way to various habits. Shall we say he'd lingered on too many palace roofs. Travelling one day in a horse-drawn carriage, a lady was sat opposite him and she was just enthusiastic and, and, and just spouting all this stuff and started talking to him. She began to recalling how persistently a particular hymn had been encouraging in her life and she was, just wanted to share it with everyone in the carriage. The hymn was, come now, fount of every blessing, prone to wander, prone to leave. As she talked, Robinson, who was just sat opposite her, became so angry with this lady that he, he burst out and said these words, Madam, I am the poor unhappy man who composed that hymn many years ago. And I would give a thousand worlds if I had them to enjoy the feelings I had then. Don't like Robinson. And don't, like David, underestimate your proneness to wonder and your proneness to leave the God that you love. But likewise, don't underestimate the forgiving grace that has been poured out because our substitute, our Messiah, King Jesus, was willing to go and die on a cross to take all the justice that you deserve. Let's pray as we close. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But I pray that these words are true for each of us. Here's my heart. Oh, take and see it. 
Seal it for thy courts above. May that be true. Amen.